said on Easter that Jesus just fainted on the cross and the disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think? The editor's reply was this. Dear reader, beat your minister with a cat of nine tails, with 39 heavy strokes, nail him to a cross, hang him in the blistering sun for six hours, run a spear through his heart, embalm him, and put him in an airless tomb for 72 hours and see what happens. <laughs> there are some very ungracious Christians around. <laughs> so is it ludicrous to think that Jesus rose from the dead? Is it ludicrous to think that he didn't rise from the dead? The Greeks didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, and so when Paul preached the resurrection at Athens, some of the people actually laughed at this doctrine. In Acts 17 and verse 32, it says that when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Greek philosophy uh, taught that the human soul or spirit is trapped or imprisoned uh, in a physical body that's considered to be weak or even evil. And so this is what the Apostle Paul was up against when some people in Corinth started to teach things that were more acceptable to the culture and the philosophical beliefs of their age and systems. And yet, at the very core of the gospel message that is revealed in Scripture is the reality of the resurrection. And so I want to examine that with you today, um, because there is a danger, I think, in our day and society that if we talk about such things that we will be ridiculed and sneered at in the same way, and that some people might feel that it's easier if we can include people in the faith community, uh, aka the church, if we kind of leave out the hard teachings uh, that relate maybe better to a bygone tradition. So I would invite you to turn in your Bible or in the church pew Bibles, if there are any left after last night. I think that uh, some people were keen to have the Word of God with them as they left our, our meeting, and that's, that's positive. Uh, but if, if the Bible's not where it should be this morning, then uh, forgive whoever stole it last night and, uh, and bring your own next week until we get church ones replaced. Um, page 1155. 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to be looking uh, today at four significant proofs of the resurrection, and I'm indebted to a Bible commentator called Warren Wearsby for suggesting the four points that I'm using this morning. Uh, I found them in Wearsby's expository outlines on the New Testament. What a gift! Uh, but makes preachers lazy, maybe. Four proofs of the resurrection. I'm going to cover each one as we come to them. So in verse 1, let's consider the historical proof. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. 
After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. By that he means died. Then he appeared to James, uh, that's the Lord's half-brother, uh, or, or stepbrother, then to all the apostles, and last of me, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Amen. Let's just leave it there and think about this for a moment. You see, since the people in the church in Corinth who are being uh, waylaid in their beliefs by some so-called super apostles who have come in and they've taught something other than the foundational gospel that the apostle Paul laid when he first went to Corinth and planted the church there. These super apostles, whoever they are, are sort of saying, you don't have to believe all the apostle Paul teaching stuff. There's an easier believism. There's a, there's a gospel that kind of cuts out uh, the reality of the physical resurrection. You can believe it was a spiritual experience and not, not a physical thing. And so Paul is writing to counteract the fact that these people are being uh, drawn away into what he tells the Galatian churches is no gospel at all. And Paul's very hard on so such teachers, on liberal teachers, or on people who distort the truth of the Word of God. He says that if anyone preaches a gospel other than the one that I preach to you, that has foundational at its very center and core, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, let that man or angel be eternally damned. These are hard words. Yeah, that's how strongly the apostle feels that a gospel that leaves out the resurrection is no gospel at all. You may have, have theological degrees and, and PhDs and, and, and lead big churches or large denominations, but if you don't believe fundamentally the gospel that saves, then the inference that Paul is saying is that you're not saved. And you need to come back to the Word. See what the Word teaches allow the Spirit to bring that sense of conviction. But the good news is that the church in Corinth don't doubt the reality of Jesus' resurrection. They doubt the reality of their own physical resurrection that is still to come, but they don't doubt that Jesus was raised from the dead. And so Paul starts arguing his case for the resurrection of all other human bodies after death based on the proof of the eyewitness testimonies, including the events surrounding his own conversion. Don't have time to look at them all, but Wilmington's book of Bible lists puts up 17 post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. And so just ping them all up there for me, Chris. And uh, if you want to, to look at these later, uh, go on our website and just download the notes, and they're all referenced there for you. But 17 post-resurrection appearances to well over five, 600 people. Uh, imagine the evidence base taking that to court today. I've got 600 independent witnesses who can testify to this, Your Honor. It's going to be a long trial, but it's going to be a pretty convincing case. So no question that the people that Paul is writing to believe that Jesus was resurrected. And the point he goes on to make is this, simply. If Jesus wasn't resurrected, there would be no salvation. Because dead men can't save anybody. Now, argues Paul... I know that you Corinthians believe in the resurrection of Christ, otherwise your faith is empty, it's vain. Christ was a man, and now he has a resurrection body. 
And Paul is going on to argue in his thesis that if, if Jesus has been raised physically from the dead and now is a glorified body in heaven, why can't we as believers have one also? It's just simply an aspect of the believer's union with Christ because he's been glorified. We one day too shall be glorified. And if you want to know more about what happens and when that happens, then I'd invite you to check out the sermon that I preached here last Sunday evening about the resurrection body. That's also available as a download or buy on DVD from our media library. Now, the evidence is, is way beyond reasonable doubt. Jesus rose from the dead. Historical fact. And at the time Paul wrote this letters, there were hundreds of people alive who could verify his claims. So that's um, the historical proof. Let's look at what Paul offers as a personal proof. Verse 12. Let's read on. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised... For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be more pitied than all men. So Paul points to the Corinthians own personal experience. Paul has come into a, a Gentile, a Greek pagan culture, and he has preached the gospel, the one that he outlines that was of first importance. And on hearing that gospel, and implicitly that gospel, the Corinthians have found themselves strangely and weirdly drawn to putting their trust in this Jesus that Paul says has been raised from the dead. And so he says, look, if in fact the dead aren't raised, then Christ wasn't raised either. And this is all just make-believe. It's all a mirage. It's all some strange mental condition, and we're to be pitied. Poor, horrible, strange Christians believing in something. It's a bit of a crutch to them. Dreadful scenario, he says. The dead are not raised then Christ is dead. He died and he's still dead. And the gospel is a lie. That's what Paul's saying. And their faith in that gospel is vanity. And worse than that, if it could be worse, they are still in their sins and are facing the full penalty, condemnation, and wrath of God, because the wages of sin is death. It has to be paid. It's God's judgment on every human being. The wages of sin is death. And some of you go, well, well, thank goodness I'm not a sinner then. But the Bible says that all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No, not one. There is no one who seeks God. No one who seeks after Him. If you can be perfect from the day that you're born, actually from the moment you're conceived when life begins, until the day you die, you can be saved in and of your own merits. But no one can do that. Who in this room today has never told a lie? I dare you, challenge you, put your hand up and tell the first one or the second. All of us have lied. All of us have said things, done things. Maybe we've not committed the heinous crimes that society would want us punished for, uh, either to be fined, imprisoned, or, or, or possibly even reintroduce the death penalty and, and hang these horrible people. But God says, each one of you, the best that you can do by achieving righteousness before him is just a smell, a horrible, nasty, putrid stink in his nostrils. We're all sinners who fall short of the glory of God. So therefore, we're all deserving of death. So your sin deserves someone to die for it. And if you don't trust Jesus, you'll die for it yourself. But if you trust Jesus, then he's borne the penalty. He's paid the price, the debt against you can be canceled. And Paul said, I preached that to you when I came. So why would you allow someone to take that gospel away from you, the gospel that brings liberty and freedom, and the power of the Spirit in Jesus to give you assurance that death is dead, your sin is canceled, and you can go on into life in Him. So let's look at the third proof, a doctrinal proof this time. In verse 20, you see, he concludes there that if there, if there is no resurrection, then the Christian faith is only good for this life, and there is no hope after death. So in verse 20, he says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For in Adam... That is talking about the Adam who's listed in Genesis in creation and who sinned and fell short of the glory of God, and subsequently so do all of we. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. For each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, and then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God the Father to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now then, now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all and all. For those of you who were here last Sunday or, or want to visit um, last Sunday evening's sermon on the website, um, you, you'll discover there or you'll remember that the thrust of Paul's argument regarding the doctrine of the two Adams in, that he also addresses in Romans 5, uh, here Paul deals with the biblical doctrine of the two Adams using that argument that sin came into the world through the first Adam. The second Adam, who is Jesus Christ, the perfect man who never committed a sin, not even in thought, never mind indeed, that, that he, was, uh, he was pure enough, holy enough, 
so that when he bore the sin of the world in his crucifixion and his death, the death couldn't hold him because the wages of sin is death. And yet he had no sin of his own to pay the penalty for. So death couldn't hold him for, for the punishment that was laid on him. The punishment that was laid on him was the punishment that you and I deserve. And so he died in our place. And death couldn't hold him. And he rose from the dead. And that's why the resurrection is absolutely core and central to the gospel message. Because if the dead aren't raised, then there's no hope for us. We're going to die in our sin. Jesus wasn't raised, then we die in our sin. Adam and Jesus have this in common. Both of them are first members of a human race. The first Adam in Genesis is the father of the whole human race that has always lived throughout all time and in every part of the world. And all of his descendants are sinners who fall short of the glory of God. The resurrected Jesus is the first uh, member of a new human race of people who can have their sins forgiven, pardoned by God, raised to a supernatural spiritual life in a resurrected physical body that the Bible teaches later on in this chapter is like the material that the angels have. Now, I, I know to, to Greek philosophical thinking, to intellectual people who have been raised on, on a diet of uh, we came from sludge, we evolved, that I just sound like an absolute idiot. Well, that's okay. Perfectly happy to stake my whole life on the fact that I know there is a creator God, that the theory of evolution has never been proven and never will. There are some aspects of it that I cannot understand and I cannot intellectually argue with you. But the Bible says that in the beginning, God created mankind in his own image. That's our dignity. That's our worth. That's our value. Just as human beings, that gives us value above the animals. But more than that, the Bible says that Jesus came and those who believe in him have a value and a dignity even above all other human beings. Because to those who believed in Jesus Christ, John says in chapter 1 of his gospel, he gave to them the right to be called children of God. Children not born of a father's will or human descent, but born of the Spirit. And that's the experience that we have when we believe the gospel. When Jesus Christ returns to earth in what is known as his second coming, then the dead in Christ will be raised. Uh, scripture points to that reality going to happen sometime in the future. Jesus will finally put all things under his foot, including death, and believers will receive their new spiritual bodies. And to quote Warren Wearsby, uh, whose outlines I'm stealing, borrowing today, he says, to deny the resurrection of the dead is to deny the future kingdom of Christ. If believers are dead and gone, then God's promise for the future is null and void. It's the point that Paul's making. So finally, we come to a practical proof in the remaining verses. Let's look at verse 29. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised, why are people baptized for them? As for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every hour. I mean that, brothers. Sure, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, 
And, and this is the chorus of today, isn't it? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. And so Paul offers us two examples from daily life in practical proof that the dead are indeed raised. First of all, he mentions several practices in daily life that prove the resurrection of the body. Um, For one thing, and I don't have time to go into it at length, the Corinthians were baptizing for the dead. Now, there's a whole lot of disagreement among biblical uh, authorities and commentators as to what that might mean. Some people think it might mean that, that people who die without having been baptized, that somehow somebody is, is baptized by proxy on their behalf. Uh, others believe that it might mean that um, the church is simply baptizing into the church to replace those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Uh, I don't think that either of them actually fits as a very comfortable explanation. I think that what has happened here is that the church, even in the first century, is not practicing baptism in the way that Jesus actually intended it to happen. But the very fact that they're practicing baptism at all, even though it's not true biblical believer's baptism, Paul says, why do you do that? If baptism isn't a symbol of the fact that you're baptized into Christ, in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection from the dead, what are you doing it for? In any form or fashion, by any amount of water, by any means of words, why do you do it? It's a stupid church practice if the dead aren't raised. And he says, so look at it. Just a practical proof. The church at Corinth was was practicing baptism. And baptism is symbolic of death, burial, and resurrection. By far the vast number of New Testament scholars agree that the early church baptized by full immersion. Now, surely it is foolish to baptize anyone by any method if there is no resurrection from the dead. It could be simply superstitious. Oh, the person's going to die. They better get baptized because if they're not baptized, then they won't be saved in eternity. Well, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, there is no eternity. So I do it at all, is Paul's argument. And then he goes on and sort of highlights uh, the personal hardship and danger aspect of the practical proof. In verses 30 through 32, he refers to the many dangers and problems he faces on a daily basis in order to get the gospel preached to as many people as possible. Well, do you know what? If there is no gospel, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, if what you and I are doing here today is absolute nonsense and vanity, well, you know, a bit like Paul, I can do without the stress (laughs) some days. And so can you. And she says, look, if there is no future, if there is no resurrection, let's just all party. Let's have a really good time. Let's forget about ethics. Let's forget about morals. Just let's go out there and do our own thing. There's no even any point in having any laws in the land. We normally drive on the left-hand side of the road, but you know, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead and there is no eternity, and you feel like driving up Lothian Road on the right side, you just go for it today. Don't care about the fact that you committed your life in in relationship lifelong to your partner or your spouse. You find somebody new, more attractive, just ditch the old one, get the new one in. 
Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Let's have a party, Paul says, if the dead are not indeed raised. But they are raised. That points to the reality that there is a day of judgment coming. There's no resurrection, Paul says. No point in him risking his life and inconveniencing himself as he does. So in verse 34, he concludes with, Come back to your senses. And I may be saying these words to a Christian this morning, someone who did once commit their life to Jesus, and you've backslidden for weeks or months or years, that you're living in a relationship that is not God-honoring, and the cry is, come back to your senses. Come back to your senses. God is God. And you face judgment for your sin and your wickedness before him. Not that you'll be separated from him forever, but you're going to lose your reward in heaven. You're going to face the shame of being humiliated in the day of resurrection. Maybe I'm speaking to somebody who who has, has laughed and sneered and maybe even now go, what an absolute idiot that boy who's just spoken for the last half an hour is. Welcome back to your senses. I'm not the one that's foolish. You are. Because I'm just speaking on God's behalf. These are not my words. They're inconvenient words. They're inconvenient words for me to live. But I'm speaking them to you, and you need to turn from your sin and put your trust in the living God. So come back to your senses and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. And Paul's saying that not just to non-believers. He's saying that to believers. You know, there are some people in this room this morning, and the way that you live, and the way that you speak, the priorities that you have in life point to the fact that you're ignorant of God. Paul says that to your shame. So the gospel message, what is it? Well, back there in the opening verses, second part of verse 3, this is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. It is a message that centers on the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you're about to see that enacted before you as four people come to testify to God's saving grace in their lives. John Piper asks the question, what is the gospel? And he responds by saying, it is the news that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, died for our sins. He rose again, eternally triumphant over all his enemies, so that there is now no condemnation for those who believe, but only everlasting joy. That's the gospel. It's the gospel. And it's good news for you here today if you believe it. And if you act upon it, you will be saved. Romans 10 and 9, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Any other gospel isn't good news, just confusing bad news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the convicting power of your Holy Spirit, the only one in the universe that can take these words and to turn them into something that can become life-changing. And so, gracious God, we ask that you would take your preached word through the foolishness of preaching and bring men and women into your glorious kingdom. We ask it for your glory. Lord, we also ask it pleading for their eternal safety. In Jesus' name, amen.